Hello, I'm Joanna Lumley. I'm in my garden in London, and I'm walking down the garden path to the music room. In there, I'll find my husband, the composer and conductor, Stephen Barlow. Now, we've been married almost 40 years, and I think, however long you've been with someone, you have questions that you'd like to ask your partner. So this podcast is my chance to ask Stephen the questions I've always wanted to ask him about one of his and my greatest passions, classical music. Welcome to Joanna and the Maestro. Hello, Maestro. Stevie, we're going to start off. You've written on this bit of paper rather frighteningly. What's wrong with opera? (laughs) And what is wrong with opera? Why did you write that? (laughs) Because nowadays there's a real division. I mean, there's an awful lot of people who won't even consider going to see an opera because they say, oh, no, that opera stuff. Well, it's not for me, that kind of thing. Yes, without without ever really going into a theatre. And when I think of the way that all the people that I know became interested in opera, how that happened. It was very simply being taken along at an age with an open mind as a young person or whatever. Can I just say something about how, how quickly we are divided and the amount of times I've heard disc jockeys saying, oh, we don't want that, that old classical music, we won't be having any of that, as if music, some bits of music are literally not to be had. And... When we were filming the Trans-Siberian story coming right across from, from Siberia all the way across to Moscow, we stopped in a city called Perm, which had a very, very famous Russian ballet school there and was a cultural centre. And the evening before we left, we went into an early evening part of Boris Godunov, and I sat in a box because I was being filmed watching it, and I looked down into the audience. For a start, the tickets were, you know, 10p, and secondly, the stalls were filled with the rapt faces of little children who'd all come from school. And I said, how often do they come to the man, the intendant of the opera house? And he said, they come every week. So every week, it's completely normal for children to go to the opera in Russia for very, very little money. And they absolutely got the story. They followed it. They watched every second of it. It was completely normal. They understood the language. They weren't shut out. Nobody said, you won't get this because you're from a different class, a different upbringing, a different age. Nobody said that. They expected them to know. And guess what? The kids got it just like that. And of course they did, because as soon as you hear those horns in the coronation scene, you're immediately just absorbed and drawn into the action. I don't know why I wanted to say that, but I just think that there are some divisions that, I, that make me boil, that make me boil, including very grand opera people who say, I don't think there should be surtitles. If you don't know what the opera's about and can't follow it in, in the original check, you don't deserve to see it. Well, I want to slap them. We've got to understand, if you did a Racine play, a French play, 
in rhyming couplets on stage and didn't translate it. Guess how many people would go? Two people. Guess how long it would run? One performance. So the thing is, you've got to have translations. You've got to reach people. That's the whole point of all this. That's the reason why Mozart wrote his stuff, was to reach people. OK, that's the end of that round. Absolutely. Why don't we let young children hear? Why doesn't the, the state... Why isn't it funded for young people to understand anything about classical music? It's completely alien. And by the time they've got to 15, too late. This is not a discussion. I'm OK, we're not going to go into I'm now. completely... Oh, that can be cut out. I just go, I just go white I'd like, the I'd, I'd, I'd like a, a transcript of, uh, of those last two minutes. Right. No, but back to, my, back to my original thing, which is, when was opera called opera as opposed to plays or performances of some kind with songs which people might have found catchy or something? Or When did it become the form that we can recognise today, even if it wasn't exactly the same? Well, the whole development of our structures now, that we have now, um, goes all the way back to um, when instruments were formalised, because we all know that stories go back as far as uh, you can possibly imagine. Because we find drawings which tell a story, we, we must assume that there were ancient stories, and this has come down in folk legend. And singing is just a development of our natural process of speaking. So when you begin to look for a dramatic entity, like a play, or um, we use these terms play now, a drama, you can see the whole development happening from about the 14th century in the Western world. And it all happened rather quickly. We talk about the first constructed opera that people would have sat down and listened to as being Monteverdi's L'Orfeo. And he was the first composer to really cement the blending of drama and music. You can really hear that in the Toccata, where the flourish of trumpets introduces the character of La Musica. Right at the beginning, the idea of opera coming as opera, even if it was in a slightly different form from, let's say, something that would go on in the Royal Opera House today, was early 17th century, 1605, 07, or something like that, Monteverdi. That's about the time it could be called opera. Yes, and what we mean is a dramatic performance of connected pieces with a narrative with set design. So there would have been backdrops, mm. and but artists would have simply come on and stood. And the element that I think we mean when we say opera is when a composer put together a number of pieces that he was linking musically in a satisfying form. Mm. So... 
Opera really is a huge generic term. Now, people, when they talk about opera, they generally mean um, what happens at the Royal Opera House with an enormous orchestra, with with um, a vast chorus and a big... But fabulous big sets, a spectacular. I mean, something quite extraordinary. Yes. You usually go and see... And if you come and see, actually, curtains and some people just singing with, with ordinary home clothes on, you feel a bit cheated. Because what it is, opera has always meant spectacle, something that you don't usually get from a man whistling as he ploughs the fields. You want something different and, and a story brought to life. So those early performances, I imagine had some sort of um, theatrical input. They weren't just people standing and singing. No, I rather think, I think, rather they, think were? they were, because in those days there was no thought for singers to act the music. And you have to remember that the music would have probably expressed one thing at a time. But we had Shakespeare plays going at the time where they, people were entertained. They used to being entertained. Bits coming on, people being stabbed or killed or being funny or jesting or falling in love. So yeah, the, you, that must see, have the reached element, over into opera as well. The element in opera, to start off with, it didn't include acting per se. Ah. And to a certain extent this element still has uh, has to be um you, you, let's put that another way you you can still see opera performances where acting is a low priority <laughs> it's very tactfully put uh, well you don't be too rude no because it, <laughs> no because it's well, because it's, in my time yeah in my generation the last 40 odd 40 odd years that i've been doing it mm. I've seen young singers respond to the demand from conductors and directors to become fully involved in acting. And younger singers know mm. that acting is part of what they must do. Do you like that? I think that's good. It matters to me hugely because yeah. the most important thing for me is the marriage of text and music. It's not simply a musical performance. And a composer did not write an opera to have people simply standing there loving the music too much. Otherwise, all opera would just be on the radio, wouldn't it? I mean, we wouldn't have to go and see it. The thing is, when people just say the voice, the voice is all, and in the old days, those quite enormous sort of stars, enormous in both ways, would say, it doesn't matter what I look like, and they'd dress in curtains if necessary, because their voice was the precious thing, and you were lucky to go and hear the voice. Now people want to see somebody, if she's called the most beautiful woman, if it's, she's playing Helen of Troy, singing Helen of Troy, they want to see somebody whose face launched a thousand ships, so she's got to look fabulous. If she's Turandot, Princess of China, she's got to look spectacular. She can't just have a terrific voice. There's got to be more there, hasn't there? That's absolutely right. It's got to be theatrical in the same way that it is when you go and see a play. Well, can you give us an example of a really theatrical, dramatic opera? Yes. In Puccini's La Boheme, there's a moment that's truly grand and glorious. The rendition of Musetta's famous waltz song when she's deliberately flirting in front of her real love, Marcello. Mm. The recording Beecham made, which is so wonderful, came as a result of a sudden realization by Beecham's manager that Yussi Bjorling, Victoria de Los Angeles, and Beecham would be in New York at the same time in the spring of 1956. So they just decided to get together and record the entire opera. Or via, rest the moment, in no 
written down six things here, six six sensations or sort of modes. You've written down admiration, admiration, amour, love, en, hatred. These are all written in French, incidentally. Désir, desire, joie, joy, tristesse, and sorrow. Yeah, are these things that are always or kind of primarily stitched in, or there's just early kind of opera? No, there's a science to the development of everything we know as art. There is a science. And the reason I wrote those down, they're in French because they were coined by a very famous man called Descartes. Yes. Who you've probably heard of. Um, And the point is, what he was doing was identifying the six major emotions... And the purpose in those days, because this is, you know, Descartes, he constructed these in 1649 and Handel was born only a few years later. And Handel was one of the greatest of all opera composers, commercially enormously successful. And he was ours. He came to work in London because he was so alive. But the point is that in those days, musicians met with scientists and philosophers and mathematicians. They met to discuss the human condition. It's all pinned on this pursuit that was structured so well by Alexander Pope, who said this, to wake the soul with tender strokes of art. And what he meant by that was that art's pursuit was to reflect and to demonstrate all of these emotions, but what's more, to evoke them by acting certain scenes on stage. You see this in Handel's Rinaldo so well. There's a beautiful emotive plea in the aria Lascia che pianga, meaning let me weep, where we hear a heartfelt plea from the character Almirena to her abductor. When did opera suddenly become perceived as something so grand that it's only for posh people? Was it only because it was expensive? Or was it because people stopped hearing and knowing or loving that kind of music? That kind of music. By that I mean classical rather than of course it's expensive. music hall or something. Of course if it, it's expensive. It's expensive and, because, and tell it, me why, elucidate why, examine why. Because you've got... Simply because you've got a number of characters... And then there was the growth of the necessity for a chorus, and there was a necessity for your set builders, construction. You you had to have an opera house, and the biggest houses and the biggest courts in in Europe had their own opera house, but these opera houses wouldn't have been enormous, but there is a cost attached. And you had to pay the orchestra, of course, and all the people, all the costumes. Of course. I mean, this is huge. And if you've got a chorus, it's not... You see, a play, you can get away with a two-hander or a six-hander makes a very satisfying evening. Yeah. And maybe they might be in modern clothes. Usually with something... I'm going to go back to Turandot because a lot of people will have seen it and it's quite, it's quite a, a rich and well-known opera. What is the chorus in Turandot? You need a big chorus. So what are we talking um, about? Because the orchestra is huge and the cast is big, so it can't be done in anything less than an opera house of a certain size. So you really are talking about a 
a chorus usually of 40 to 60. 40 in the chorus. <clears throat> to 60. 40 to 60. And yeah. then you've got the principals. And there are, what, maybe 12 principals in Turandot, something like that? Something like that. And then you've got an orchestra. It's a big orchestra for that, for that opera. Yes, yes, it's a huge orchestra, which you can really hear the full strength of in Act One when there's a big chorus and the whole orchestra is just going hell for leather. huge number of people who have to be paid, yep. a huge number of people who have to be on stage dressed yes. and quite often elaborately dressed, which means wigs, which means wig makers and dressmakers. So an enormous thing. So it's not just saying, yeah. oh, it's posh and it's expensive. You've got to see where the money goes. Yes. Now, let's make the important distinction here that opera, as I said, is, is a huge generic term. And for me, it's a mistake to avoid saying we are talking about very big music theatre. And once you've relaxed that um, opera and you think about music theatre, i.e. music and text and lighting and set and orchestra or whatever, you then begin to take in musicals. Mm. Now, musicals too are fabulously expensive. Now, But they make it back. Yes. And you, they do... Is that because they do eight shows a week? Because opera singers can't sing eight shows a week. You're right, they can't. But somebody with an ampli- ampli- with a throat mic or a head mic can sing eight shows a week because they don't have to sing in the same way that trained opera singers do, which is like the entire body. You can just sort of sing That's from exactly the head. That's exactly right. Your yeah, amplification makes an enormous difference. Yeah. Um, but... But don't forget that there have been strands, different strands of the development of music throughout the history of music. So there was always folk music mm. and there was always church music. And, and, and then you look at the end of the, the very end of the 19th century and into the early years of the 20th century, you see jazz beginning. So there have always been separate strands with separate audiences. And of course, now we have pop music, which is so completely different from folk music and jazz. And even within pop music, you have the divisions into all of the different pockets. Garage, we rap. We literally can't say them. No, we can't. We, we literally we, don't know we'd them. Because we go on forever. We go down to, I'm back to the twist and rock and roll and things like this, so this is pretty tragic. That's exactly right. But my point is this. Yeah. People make a mistake in simply, at far too early an age, to say, well, I can't be doing that. That's not... Me. See, my point is very simply that ultimately we are talking about the same process. Musicals also grew out of recit, which is the dialogue, and there were operas composed with dialogue, which wasn't sung as well. Say, now just say quickly what restative, because when all you musicians <laughs> quietly say, yeah, the recit, and all this, it rather left me, and I go, yeah, yeah, exactly, and I didn't know what it was. Yeah, what I mean, is the recit? Restative is spoken conversation set to music that follows the speed and the pattern of speech. It's composed very carefully to heighten drama and leave gaps 
for pauses. Um, it's very skillfully written lyrical text. And tell me, what is an example, for instance, of one of Mozart's recits? In The Marriage of Figaro, you see there's a particularly good example of it, which has a really complex storyline. And the recit here works well to inform all of the depths of the story. No need to one, it's all going smoothly. And this is the position. It seems that his lordship has intentions towards my Susanna. With cunning and with duplicity, he hopes to reinstate his traditional rights. The whole thing's very possible and very natural. Possible, natural. Perfectly natural. Joanna here. Maestro Stephen Barlow and I want to hear from you, our wonderful listeners. Send us your classical music questions, queries, and concerns through to hello at joannaandthemaestro.com and we'll get back to you on the programme. Thank you so much. So we've got opera and you've said, what's wrong with it? What's right with it? Why is it that sometimes in operas, and to be fair, in some musicals, what is it about music and storytelling that can quite often catch you off guard and you weep. Whereas if you watched it, you might, you might, you might in a play, you might weep when he says farewell, farewell, and waves Sankey. I made that a bit small. But on stage, if it was sung and there was music there, music has a different kind of power, doesn't it? So is opera surfing, is it theatre surfing on music, as it were? <laughs> um, of course, to a certain extent. What music can do is to show more subtleties and nuances in a line of text. So, for example, um, just to use a really mundane phrase, I'm going to go down to the shops. Mm. I raised my voice for shops. Now, if you set that musically, you could do it in all sorts of ways to create character, liveliness. I mean, I said it in a very monotone. Well, I could say, I'm going to go down to the shops. I'd leave you at once. It would the divorce papers would be on the table. <laughs> I'm going to go down to the shops. Yeah, no, that would be sad as well. Now, well, well yes, yeah. that's, that's okay. what music... Music can put a nuance on that. And then when you are looking at poetry, concise language, mm. music really can expand what the meaning is behind those words. Now, don't ask me to demonstrate no, I'm this not going the piano. To. No, I'm not going to, but you go... <laughs> but but... I, can, I can give you a very good example yeah. of this wonderful binary thing that music can do for text. In Handel's opera, Julius Caesar, Caesar at one point sings an aria, and I've got the words translated into English. He wrote this in Italian. Quiet and camouflaged is the wily hunter, a predator stalking its prey, and one that harbours ill intent isn't quick to utter what his heart conceals away. Now, the point about that text is that you see it on the page, and a composer thinks, now, how can I give that character interest, fascination, more depth? How can I illuminate what might be behind that? Now, this is Caesar saying it, the most powerful man in the world. 
And Handel sets this aria with a horn solo. Now, don't forget, this is about the hunter. So the connection is obvious, a hunter's horn. And the music has a martial background, but it's very, very soft. Its engine is a steady pulsating rhythm. Now, when it comes to staging that, it's up to the director to understand exactly that, not to go against it and not to overplay it. You talked easily there, easily, about directors because I know you sometimes have white nostril moments about particular productions, as it were, directed by certain people. When Mozart wrote The Magic Flute and Schikaneda put it on, Mozart knew Schikaneda was going to stage it and he wanted him to do it. He would bring it to life, bits like Queen of the Night and the Three Boys and all that sort of thing, and he knew he would stage it properly. And when you have a dramatic aria like that fabulous piece, The Queen of the Night, where the Queen is giving her daughter a knife and telling her to assassinate someone, you need to make sure that the staging meets the drama of the music. So it's important to remember, which you said earlier on, that opera is as much about seeing it, witnessing it, as it were. So you hear it, but you see it. And because I'm more visual than I am oral, in that, unlike you, I'm not intrinsically musical, I'm not intrinsically anything, but I do like seeing things. <laughs> and if, if I can make it... You know there picture, are witnesses to this conversation. If, if a picture forms in my mind or is presented to me, and the music plays, and the story unfolds, it becomes a three-dimensional package that is simply divine, simply colossal. And that relies enormously on how it looks, how it appears, how it's presented, quite apart from how it sounds and how it's played and how it's sung. So mm -hmm. I'm not particularly concerned of talking about this today because we haven't got very much time left, Mr. Barlow. As usual, we've gone over the time because I wanted to talk about the types of voices that people... For instance, Julius Caesar, Handel's Julius Caesar, is sung by a woman. Why is that voice chosen? And being a woman, does it matter? And did audiences have to sit there knowing it was a woman and that she was Caesar? That's I mean, historical. all sorts of extraordinary that, things. That, that's historical. Just Can you just do it, run it very, very quickly? No, no, Can you no, run over that? No, very no, that's historical, and we can, in a, in a future podcast, we can talk about singers and singing because it's, it, it's, it's, it's a huge, it, it's a beautiful subject. It's yeah. really interesting. But the important thing now for all of us in the operatic world is to try and seek the Holy Grail, really, which is the marriage of text and music, which actually means proper collaboration between the two people 
who are responsible for an opera. The two people are the conductor and the director. And when you have a conductor and a director who collaborate and ask each other questions where they are experts in their own fields, all the performers relax because they know that they're in good hands, that there isn't going to be a battle between the music and the drama, which the composer has so painstakingly constructed. Maestro, I'm going to stop you there. Thank you very much indeed. <laughs> Absolutely Just lovely. as I was getting going. No, I know, I know, I know, but we can't. People have got to listen to this. They haven't all the time in the world. <laughs> Thank you. But why don't you leave us with an aria that reminds us what's right with opera? Well, here's a thought. It's not an aria. It's um, pretty much an introduction and then a duet from uh, one of the most truly beautiful moments in romantic opera. It's Richard Strauss's Rosenkavalier, the opening of Act Two, I think. The scene is called The Presentation of the Rose, when Octavian brings a ceremonial silver rose as a token from Baron Ox, to whom the young, lovely Sophie is being married off. Octavian, who has been having an illicit affair with the more mature Feldmarschallin, naturally falls in love with young Sophie. In this episode, you heard the following music. The Coronation Scene, from Boris Gudinov, composed by Modest Mussorgsky, performed by Issei de Brauen, Boris Kristof, Choix Rousset de Paris, and the Orchestra Nationale de France. The record label was Opera Prima Carillon. Toccata, from Orfeo, composed by Claudio Monteverdi. It was performed by the English Baroque soloists and conducted by John Elliott Gardner. The record label was Deutsche Grammophon. Sipoyo, from La Boheme, Act One, composed by Giacomo Puccini. It was performed by Fernando Carena, Robert Merrill, John Reardon, UC Bueling, the RCA Victor Orchestra, and conducted by Sir Thomas Beecham. The record label was Masterpieces. Ronaldo, Act Two. Lassia Chiopianga, composed by George Frederick Handel. It was performed by Cecilia Bartoli and the Academy of Ancient Music. The conductor was Christopher Hogwood, and record label was Decca Music Group. Turandot, Act One, Gira Lecotte, Gira, written by Giacomo Puccini, Giuseppe Adami, and Renato Simoni. It was performed by the choir and orchestra of the Rome Opera. It was conducted by Francesco Molinari Pradelli. The publisher was G Recordi and Co. And record label was EMI Records. Turandot, Act One, Barcatarda la Luna, written by Giacomo Puccini, Giuseppe Adami, and Renato Simoni. It was performed by the choir and orchestra of the Rome Opera. It was conducted by Francesco Molinari Pradelli. The publisher was G. Recordi & Co. And record label was EMI Records.
The Marriage of Figaro, K492, Act 2, written by Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart and Lorenzo de Pont. It was performed by Yvonne Kenny, Christopher Purves, Rebecca Evans and the Philharmonia Orchestra. It was conducted by David Parry and translated by Jeremy Charles Sams. The publisher was Faber Music and record label was Chandos. Julius Caesar, HWV 17, Act 1, Scene 4, How Silently, How Slyly, written by George Frederick Handel and Nicola Francesco Heim. It was performed by Dame Janet Baker and the English National Opera Orchestra. The conductor was Sir Charles Macaris, and it was arranged by Sir Charles Macaris and Noel Francis Davies. The record label was Chandos Records. The Magic Flute, K620, Act 1, Scene 6. O Zitrenicht mein lieber Son, written by Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart and Emanuel Johann Joschikenader. It was performed by Otto Klemperer, Lucia Pop, and the Philharmonia Orchestra. The conductor was Sir Charles Macaris, the publisher was Atmosphere Music, and record label was EMI Records. De Rosen Cavalier, Act 2, Mir ist de Eir Wiederharen, written by Richard Strauss and Hugo Hoffmannsthal. It was performed by Anne-Sophie von Otter, Barbara Hendricks, Bernd Beyer, Claire Powell, Hans-Dieter Flüger, Dame Kiri Takanawa, Raina Zakowski, Richard Leach, the Dresden State Opera Chorus, and Staatskapelle Dresden. The record label was EMI Records. All music for the intro is supplied courtesy of Naxos Music UK. Mozart's Exultate Jubilate K165, performed by Pretty Coles, Camerata Casovia, and conducted by Johannes Wildner. Licensed courtesy of Naxos Music UK Limited.